right, thanks, Jackie. Good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Midtown. I'm really glad that you're here with us. Um, I want to invite you just to take a moment to actually put down your stuff as we do at the beginning of our teaching time, and uh, let's just take a moment to take a deep breath and get into our bodies, kind of settle ourselves, and um, let's ask God to speak to us. And so we're going to take just a moment of silence and be reminded that God is here with us. We have nothing to fear, nobody to impress. We're just simply here to listen to our Father who wants to, to transform us this morning. So let's take a moment of silence and I'll pray for us. God, our Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, We're grateful for the opportunity to gather, to sing, to celebrate your goodness, and to try to learn together what it looks like to find delight in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So would you speak now through your word? We are your servants and we are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Steve mentioned we're continuing our series uh, called Delighting in the Trinity, and um, both in this room and in the gallery, we want to, in this season, invite you and really help each other um, get into delight, right? Because if we're honest, we just, we come in here, maybe, I don't know where you're at this morning, maybe a little bit uh, bored, restless, maybe apathetic, and um, and so we want to invite you in, these, uh, in this teaching series, into a deeper delight. Um, and also, again, as you leave today, don't forget, out in the gallery, we're taking each week to, to uh, take a string and kind of enter into a contemplative space and to, um, to pray with the Trinity uh, and to take a moment to be reminded that our lives are lived in the Trinity and the reality of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so as you go, there's an installation out there uh, that our some arts team put together that we'd love for you to take advantage of this morning. Um, but we want to get into this, this kind of, um, we want to cultivate this sense of delight that comes from the ancient liturgy that we want to, I want to invite you to, to listen to and hear again. We'll say this every week. Um, but th- I love this liturgy, and it, it kind of is a little bit subversive, especially at a time like this. But it just says this, Advent uh, is a time of devout and expectant delight. Well, let's say that together. Advent is a devout and, ex- excuse me, let's say it again. Advent is a time of devout and expectant delight. Yeah, that's, that's what we want to get into. That's what the church has said for centuries about Advent. And so this week, we want to continue looking at that together, connecting the gifts of love and joy and delight that we want to be more and more present in our lives, and, and kind of a deeper delight, right? Not, not like a superficial, there's kind of a delight, and I realize I'm talking to a bunch of mostly 20 and 30-somethings, not all of you guys, but there's kind of a delight when you're 20 that, that's like naive, um, it's a little bit superficial, uh, and, then, and then there's what C.S. Lewis calls uh, the deeper thrills, the deeper delights that as you get older, um, it's, it's a delight that can look at the brokenness of this world and can kind of assimilate that, can kind of metabolize that, and still find a sort of deeper delight on the other side of that brokenness or through that brokenness. And that's, that's what we're after here together, not closing our eyes to the realities and how, how hard life is, but being able to connect um, with delight and to connect that with the giver of delight, the one who is delight, God himself. Now, to get us in today, um, every year during this season, I reread an Advent devotional. Um, it's called God is in the Manger. And it's written by one of my kind of theological heroes, mentors. Um, really, our vision of community in a lot of ways is shaped around this, this man, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, he was 
a, a pastor and, uh, and a freedom fighter, actually, during Hitler's rise to power in Nazi Germany. And after 12 years of struggling and resisting Hitler, he was arrested and put in prison and actually executed just a few weeks before uh, Hitler's life was ended and, and people were liberated. And there was this collection of letters that he wrote while he was in prison to friends and family uh, as he learned to celebrate uh, the, the season of Advent. And, and I think it's probably nowhere better for us to learn about delight than from a person who's actually writing from prison in the midst of suffering and in a place where he would never, he would never actually get freed from, um, but essentially would die there. But he writes this about Advent and about waiting in Advent. He says, life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. Things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Not everyone can wait. The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness with them. Thus, Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no peace, who know that they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come before which they can only bow in humble timidity, waiting until he inclines himself toward us, the Holy One himself, God in the child in the manger. So this is where we find ourselves in Advent, waiting. And God's gift to us in our waiting is himself. And more specifically, we want to look this morning at the gift of the Holy Spirit that God gives us. This, I believe, is the key to deep joy and delight the kind of delight that sustains us in the midst of brokenness and disappointment and what one theologian calls the unfinished symphony of life. So today I want to look at a few narratives here in Luke chapters 1 and 2. We started here a few weeks ago. I want to come back here again. People who were waiting on God's promises for salvation in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And, and I want to see how their encounter with the Holy Spirit specifically, particularly, Help them to wait with profound joy and delight. So going back to the story here in Luke chapter one that Jackie just read for us, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, God's favor is with you. Essentially, you know, you're, you're blessed. And why? Because you're pregnant with the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you can imagine, as you would be, I imagine if God told you that, um, the language there uh, in verse 29, look at verse 29, she was deeply troubled by this statement. It wasn't like, of course, I'm pregnant with God's baby, you know, awesome. There was a, a sense of being disturbed that this can be translated troubled or confused or shocked. I have to say she's surprised, to put it mildly, right? Because again, she's not an idiot, Right? We, we, we oftentimes look back with what Lewis calls a chronological snobbery at these people. We assume they're uneducated hillbillies who don't understand. Like She knew how pregnancy works. She knows how people get pregnant. Okay, uh, She's very in touch with that. As a Jew, she would have been taught about the holiness of God, and she would have known that God doesn't come into people in this kind of way. She, she understands what's happening, and it disrupts her. She understands the implications of saying yes to God's invitation here. She, she's literally surrendering, surrendering not only her spirit, but her body to God. She's surrendering her womb to God. She's surrendering her reputation to God. She's surrendering her future to God, and possibly here, even her marriage to God, because we know that Matthew tells us behind the scenes that Joseph is quietly trying to divorce her because they're in the middle of their betrothal. But this is the good news that comes to her, and it, and it shocks her sensibilities. And, and I want to argue that that's always how the kind of good news that God's, God brings to us, true good news, life-changing good news, it, it, it has a sort of surprising effect on us. It shocks us. It troubles us. It disturbs us. It disrupts us. And I think it disrupts us because we're so accustomed to a life full of bad news, we're so used to, and we just get kind of acclimated into a life full of disappointment and the status quo and mediocrity, and if we're not careful, man, it's, we have to be vigilant to guard our hearts and our souls, because if we're not careful, a kind of despair, a kind of apathy, a kind of mediocrity, particularly as you move towards 
your middle years and beyond. It can kind of just creep in and, and blow in just like a, a good Midwestern winter, you know, kind of a winter storm. It blows in and just kind of settles over your soul. I don't know if you experience that. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Ronald Rollheiser, a spiritual writer, he, he says this. He, he calls it kind of a sort of despair that can creep in, particularly in the, in the middle years, um, as you get into your 30s and 40s and 50s. But it, it can certainly hit you. I know that 25 is the new 40s, so it can certainly hit you in your 20s uh, as well, if you're paying attention. But here's what he says. Despair is the death of our sense of surprise, the belief that nothing new can happen to us. We despair at the precise moment when consciously or unconsciously, we say in resignation, that is the way I am. That is the way things have always been for me and is the way that it will always be. For me, it's too late. When we have every angle of reality so calculated and figured out that we know all the possibilities, then nothing new can come along to surprise us. Sadly, our prophecy will be self-fulfilling because we have ceased believing in God and grace in a real sense. We might believe it theoretically, but in a real sense. We've slimmed down God and grace to fit our own small minds. We live not merely in despair, but also in mediocrity. Mary here is being invited, she's being disrupted She's going to be invited by God to expand her horizons of possibility, to expand her vision of what's possible. I mean, that's what's at stake here, right? What's actually possible as a beloved child of God, as one who's inheriting the promises of God, but who's experienced 400 years of silence at this point? I mean, that's what's at stake. If you notice verse 37, the angel says to her, for nothing will be impossible with God. He's assuming that there are things that may seem impossible to her in that moment and likely have settled into her soul in terms of the horizons. By the horizons, a possibility, I mean, as you look into the future, what do you imagine is possible, right? The older that you get, the more that the temptation is to shrink those horizons of possibility, to see certain bridges as closed, certain roads and avenues as closed to kind of get a tunnel vision about your life. But that's not always how it's been, right? I mean, do you remember the first time like you had your imagination opened up for something that you had never experienced before? And it's like you have this small, it's like when you're a child, right? And your, your, your horizons of possibility are in some ways infinite, but in some ways so limited, right? Like children don't know. And so they, they live with this constant sense of wonder. It, it's what makes adults get angry around kids, right? We get mad because they, they still have an imagination. They're still open to awe and wonder. And we're just like, wait, just, we're so cynical. We're just like, wait till you get older. Then you'll really know like how life really works. That, what, a, what a cynical way to talk to kids, that's why, like, Lewis and Tolkien and all the great, like, fiction writers and myth writers, they always say that fairy tales are actually more true to reality, and that's why they, they wrote in myth, because they wanted to inspire imagination. But you remember, like, the first time that, like, I remember taking my kids on an airplane when we used to live in South Florida, and we'd come home for the holidays, and my kids are so little, and we get on an airplane, and I love just the pure joy of when a kid who's lived their entire life on the ground, right, they get up in a plane, and they're like, whoa, it's amazing. And all of a sudden, their, their horizons for how big the world is are opened up. I remember um, taking my son, uh, each of our kids, we, we do a trip at the end of their fifth grade year to kind of initiate them into the next season of life, and, and I remember taking my oldest on our first trip uh, to Universal Studios. Remember like the first time, you ever been to Disney World or you ever been to like Universal Studios? I mean, we went to Harry Potter World and, and this is a kid that had read all the novels and so we went at the end and we took the trip um, and it was super expensive but we did this trip <laughs> and, and they geniusly like designed it to where you have to get both, uh, it's in two parks, it spans both and you have to buy both passes. It's, man, capitalism but um, we went, and, and it just the, the pure joy of walking into uh, Diagon Alley and, and, and drinking the butterbeer, 
right? And going on the, the, the roller coaster rides in Gringotts Bank in the basement and, and just watching my son just with pure joy and wonder having his imagination opened up to this thing that he's just read about and loved so dearly. I mean, there's, there's something about that expansion of our horizons of possibility where the world seems this big and then all of a sudden it explodes into something so much grander. I mean, that's, that's what's happening here with Mary. And, and it's what needs to happen with us, right? We need to be shaken out of our apathy, out of our contentment, out of our mediocrity, right? Because we, we live in a moment, we live in a moment where we just breathe in the air of the spirit of the age, right? And not just secularism, although that's true, like a, a world framed by only the imminent and not the transcendent, but also even in the realm of religion, we live in a sort of rigidity and, and sort of a, a, a deformed religiosity. There's a spirit of the age with religion too. And it's always trying to recruit our hearts and our imagination and our energy and our, our minds and our bodies. And so our horizons of possibility are often framed by these very like horizontal pursuits and temptations. Our horizons of possibility are framed by, on a macro level, just the possibilities of politics and, and the temptations of political power, who, you know, getting this person in the office, getting this you know, social policy or this law enacted. I mean, we spend so much of our time with our concerns being dominated by the news cycle and the latest whatever buffoonery is going on in our political machinery. And we, but it's like, we just spend, can you believe this? And we're sharing articles and it's just all we think about and all we talk about. Digital consumerism, right? Like we're just, our, our horizons of possibility, it's just like the infinite doom scroll of just, yeah, like is this possible? And we're just watching our friends and we're comparing ourselves and we're envying or we're judging. I mean, just like, but we live within this very limited frame of existence, the kind of trauma that we experience. And just on a, like a micro level, Right, like our horizons, let's just forget like the cultural stuff. Just our horizons of possibility are so shaped by what we live and experience in our daily life, in our workplaces. Just the mundanity, right, of our workplaces, our relationships, the pain that we experience. And so life just becomes, this feels like this, just this infinite loop of pain and trauma and loneliness, and exhaustion, and bitterness, just put on loop, and it's just like the death of surprise. And I wanna just invite us to name that as where most of us show up this morning. I believe like Mary, we need this, like a fresh wind to blow in our hearts. We need a fresh wind to blow in our souls and our imagination to lift our horizons of possibility beyond just what's right in front of us and what's right around us, to see the transcendent and the possibilities of what God is doing and breaking into our world. When was the last time you allowed yourself to be disrupted in that way? When was the last time you allowed yourself to kind of be shocked to be disturbed, to be surprised by the grace of God while you're waiting in the difficult situations of life in a broken world. So I want us to just kind of like just emotionally open ourselves to what Mary experienced. And I want us to see how Mary moves from surprise and shock to a place of strength and surrender. That's where we find her at the end of this passage. I am the Lord's servant, one of the most courageous passages in the Bible. God has literally invaded her womb with his very presence, and she says, may it be to me, may it be done to me according to your word. I don't know of a more radical declaration of faith than that right there. So how does she move to that place? Notice the angel's words to Mary. The Lord is with you. Right at the beginning of this passage, greetings or rejoice could be translation there, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, how is the Lord with her? What is it that moves her along her journey from shock to surrender and to confidence? God's answer to Mary's fear, Mary's confusion, her surprise, is not to just give her like theological statements. 
It's, it's, it's not just to like talk at her and tell her true things. God's response to Mary is to draw near to her and actually draw so radically near to her that he actually enters her very body with his presence to fill her with the presence of the one that he calls the Holy Spirit. Notice, if you read Luke chapters one and two, the Holy Spirit is mentioned eight times. Jesus is mentioned four times. God the Father mentioned one, maybe two times. So so the most prominent actor of the Trinity here in Luke chapters one and two is the Holy Spirit. And I think that's for a reason. Now, there's a lot of confusion around the Holy Spirit. And I know that some of us have significant religious trauma and baggage from the churches that we grew up in that either didn't talk about the Holy Spirit or it was just super weird uh, when it came to the stuff of the Spirit. But, but I just want to give you a simple summary of how we've taught on this in the past. So if you want to go back, we did a whole, I'm sure you remember it, right at the beginning of COVID, probably not, um, right? From like, you know, March or April of 2020 through the summer, we did like eight or nine weeks on doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But I just want to put this back into a sentence for you so we know what we're ta- who we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's personal empowering presence. The Holy Spirit is God's personal empowering presence. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not some weird like energy that flows through the universe and like influences us. It's not like Jedi stuff, right? It's not that the sign. He's God and he's a person and he's God's empowering presence to us. And the language that Luke uses here to describe this encounter that Mary has with the Holy Spirit is very particular and very important. And so I want us to, to look at this because the words and the imagery that he's using are, are, are intentional. And it's kind of like a hyperlink, like when you're sending a link and you double click and it takes you somewhere else. This is Luke's kind of way of hyperlinking Mary's experience and connecting it with God's work in the, connecting God's work in the present with his work in the past with God's people, Israel. More specifically, Luke wants to take his readers back. He wants to take us back to the creation narrative of Genesis chapter one. Now, in Genesis chapter one, verses one through two, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the spirit of God was, here's a key word, hovering. Hovering over the surface of the waters. So in Genesis one, we read at the very beginning, when God creates the world, he creates the universe, he creates the earth, says the earth is dark and formless and void. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. The metaphor here is like that of a, of a mother bird. The language here with hovering is like that of a mother bird hovering over her babies. In the same way, the Spirit is hovering over it. Another translation here of the Spirit can be the breath of God. This is the Hebrew word ruach. It's used to describe, it's the name of the Holy Spirit in Hebrew, ruach. The breath of God or the wind of God. Whenever you see spirit, it literally means breath or wind. So the spirit of God, God's very breath, the wind of God blows across the chaos of an empty world, transforming it into a temple garden. We go on to read in Genesis 1 and 2, a place of life and order, and beauty, and harmony, and flourishing, a place where God's presence is going to dwell with the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and with his creation. So we see the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, God in action, creating, stimulating, strengthening, renewing, transforming creation, bringing order and harmony and life out of disorder and chaos. That's how we know we've experienced the spirit of creation in our lives. Whenever we experience life-giving power, we know the spirit of God is present and on the move. If you keep on reading, you see the spirit at work again in Genesis chapter two. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath 
of life, and the man became a living creature, literally a living soul, living person. God breathes his spirit into Adam's nostrils to create a living soul from the dust of the earth. And so we see here, as the spirit works, not just the power of the spirit to create and transform, but kind of the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, the intimacy, the peace that the spirit operates in and brings. I mean, is there anything more intimate and more vital to us and closer to us than our breath, the breath in our lungs that gives us life? I mean, just again, let's just take a, take a deep breath. I mean, that's the intimacy of the Spirit of God in us. This is one of the dominant themes of the Old Testament, God's empowering presence with his people, both in strength and in intimacy. In Exodus, the tabernacle is built as a place where God's presence dwells with his people 24-7. Solomon builds a permanent temple where the, the spirit of God, God's presence, dwells with his people permanently. Through sin and idolatry and injustice, God's people forfeit the presence and they're sent into exile. And that's why they're so devastated when the temple is torn down and they're expelled from the promised land and they're taken out because they've lost the presence of God. But then there's all these prophecies, right, in the rest of the Old Testament, the prophetic literature about the renewing presence of the Spirit, about the return of the presence of God to his people. One day, one day, the prophets say, the Spirit would blow again. And just as he was over the chaos of Genesis chapter 1, he would once again hover over the chaos of their idolatry and their injustice and their exile. And he would breathe fresh life into his people once again. The Spirit would be poured out, not temporarily this time, but permanently on all people. And this time it's going to cross over racial and social and gender divides. We read that in Joel chapter 2. And most significantly for our text today, the Spirit is going to fill this Messiah. Literally, Messiah means a Spirit-anointed king who would bring God's kingdom to the earth. That's what we read about in our, in our Advent text, texts like Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of strength and power and intimacy will rest on the Messiah. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42 says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Then there's 400 years of silence. All these promises. But man, lots of waiting. 400 years of silence. No prophets. No word from God. No fulfillment. We get impatient in minutes and hours and days. They waited generations. Now, come back to our story with Mary. What does all this mean for this story and mean for our lives? When the angel shows up, when Gabriel shows up and announces that she is to conceive the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. The Holy Spirit will fill her, the power of the Most High himself. He will come upon her and overshadow her womb. What he's doing there is not just giving a cute metaphor. What he's doing there is tapping into all of that history, tapping into all of those prophecies to invoke the continuity of God's work through the Holy Spirit. He's saying the same spirit of creation is now the spirit of new creation. It's the same Holy Spirit. He's doing the same work, but in a fresh way. The same spirit who hovered over the formless and empty and dark world in Genesis 1 is hovering over her formless and empty and dark womb, bringing forth order from chaos, light from darkness, life from death, and delight from despair. It's the creative action of the Holy Spirit that joins the eternal life of God himself with the seed of Adam in Mary's womb. And now, through Mary's son, Jesus, comes the beginning of a new creation. 
comes the beginning and dawning of a new hope, a new humanity, a new world that we now know is the kingdom of God. And what I want to just, just suggest to us from this text is that the key to understanding Mary's shift from shock and disruption to strength and surrender, the key to understanding that is the Holy Spirit. The strength that Mary walks and the intimacy that she has with God comes from being filled with the Spirit. He is with her. He is in her, and it's the Spirit as she's waiting for God. It is the Spirit that is revealing God's life to her. It is the Spirit that is imparting hope and joy and peace to Mary as she waits and she wonders and she prays and she sings about God's redemption. While still, don't forget, utterly trapped in poverty. Utterly trapped in a system of poverty and injustice where I imagine it would have been far easier for her then than it is for us now to succumb to a sort of hopelessness and mediocrity and despair. She knew that way more intimately than we probably do now. So the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding her joy, and the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding the strength and the intimacy that Jesus walked in as well, right? As God in the flesh. Yes, Jesus is God, but Jesus is also fully man, right? He's a human being who just as much as you and I do needed the power. We forget that. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life that he lived, to do the ministry that he did. The Holy Spirit is gifted to him. The Holy Spirit is the gift of love that bonded him, the son, with the father in a life of joyful intimacy. And he needed that connection as he walked through his ministry and life. What's the first thing that happens to him before he goes out in the wilderness, before he ever preaches a sermon, before he does one thing in his ministry? What happens? He gets baptized. And you remember what happens in his baptism? Dove, right? The Holy Spirit, like a dove, like a mother hovering over creation, falls on Jesus and fills him and empowers him. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus walks in that intimacy. He walks in that authority throughout his ministry. It's the key to understanding his teachings and his healings and his death and his resurrection and ascension. He was the spirit-drenched God-man. And it's through the Holy Spirit that God shares himself, all of himself, with his people And he invites them to participate in his own Trinitarian life by grace through faith. The power and the intimacy that come through an active experience with the Holy Spirit make it possible for Mary and for Jesus and for all of God's people to live what one friend of mine calls, pastor friend of mine calls, the good life within a difficult life. It's possible to live a good life within a difficult life. And that comes through the power of the Spirit. And it's not just Mary and it's not just Jesus who experienced God's empowering presence in difficult circumstances. This pattern shows up again and again, especially in Luke's gospel with the last and the least and the lost. But you see it in Luke chapters one and two. I mean, do you remember the story of Zechariah chapter one, verses five through 25? Zechariah, an old priest, And his wife, Elizabeth Barron, struggling for years and years and years with infertility. I mean, I don't know if you've ever waited on God in a season of infertility. It's awful. I mean, we we have experienced that. I know many of you have experienced the pain and the hurt and the sense of abandonment and the deep emotions that come with wanting a child and not being able to have a child. And in the midst of that despair, the Holy Spirit is poured out in Zechariah and, Mary, and Elizabeth. The Holy Spirit reveals the life and the joy and the hope that is God's to them in the midst of their infertility, and, and, they, and she gets pregnant with, with John the Baptist. We see it in the story of Simeon and Anna in chapter 2, verses 25 to 38. Right? Again, an older couple, or not a couple, older, two older folks. I don't think they're together. Maybe the stories are together, but I don't think they're together. 
But Simeon, a widow possibly, waiting on God, waiting to see God's promises revealed. Anna, a widow, the the Bible tells us, for decades, waiting and aging and wondering, is God going to show up? Is he going to fulfill his promises with kind of that ache that comes with aging as you begin to get older and you look back on your life with all of the the good and the bad and and the regret and now more of your life is behind you than in front of you, and you're beginning to experience those, those thoughts and those wonderings, and they are filled with the Spirit, and they, and they see Jesus face to face, and out of them come songs and prophecies and just delight and a sense of wonder that they've encountered the redemption of God. And so as these people wait, they encounter the Holy Spirit, and he fills them with joy. He fills them with delight. He fills them with songs and prophetic words and fasting and prayer. He reveals the life of God to them. He is the key to their ability to sustain themselves in the midst of what feels like a really long time to see God's redemptive purposes fulfilled. Now, what does all of this have to do with us? We've seen that the Holy Spirit comes alongside these disciples and reveals God's life, reveals God's love, reveals God's delight while they're waiting. But is that just for varsity-level Christians like Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna? Surely it's just for special disciples, right? People with extraordinary humility and faith or maybe like really eccentric, weird personality types that are just predisposed to weird stuff like the Holy Spirit? Like, is it just for like Ouija board type Christians? You know, just a little, just a little strange. What does that have to do with, me, with you and me? I mean, you may be looking at your life going right now like, I, I, that's not me, I don't experience that. But how do I get into that? I want that joy, I want that delight. I desperately need it and I long for that, but how do I get into that? And I just want to remind you, friends, I wanna remind you, brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit is not for elite Christians. The Holy Spirit is not for people who have special access to God. The Holy Spirit has been promised to all of us. You remember Jesus' last words to his disciples? This motley crew of people from diverse cultural backgrounds with all kinds of different personality types. The least likely group of people you'd ever expect to lead a movement in the history of the world. Jesus promises them in the the book of John, his last sermon, that when he left, he would give them something better than his own physical presence with them. What does Jesus say to his disciples? I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. The word can be translated to advocate, the one who comes alongside, to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you. And get this, he will be in you. Not just beside you, talking at you, walking with you, but in you. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth, Jesus. It is for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. He will not live in you. If I go, though, I will send him. And after saying this, He breathed on them. Where have we heard this before? In Genesis chapter two. He breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the intimacy and the power of the Spirit. Isn't that crazy to think about that? Like how how in the world could it be better? Jesus is basically saying, it's better for you to have the Spirit inside of you than than for you to have me walking beside you. How in the world is it better for me to have a spirit inside of me than for me to, I want Jesus. I want the LeBron James. I want LeBron or whatever, whoever your goat is. I don't want to get into this argument here. I don't even care. Who's the most powerful person that you could imagine, right? Like, how is that possible? Do we really believe that? I don't believe that most of the time. Like, if I had to choose, I'm choosing Jesus beside me all day long, But the interesting thing in the New Testament is that with Jesus beside them, do you remember the disciples? The profile is not great. (laughs) They're fearful. They're anxious. They run away at the cross. 
They're cowardly. They're insular. They're calling down fire on their enemies. They're like kind of xenophobic racist. Like they have all the problems with Jesus beside them. And that has nothing to do with the incompetency or ineffectiveness of Jesus. There's, there's a sort of progression and progressive nature to the kingdom of God. My point is, though, that something shifted, right? When they came to know internally that they were like Jesus as they were baptized into the Spirit, God's beloved children in whom he was well pleased, as they were filled with the Spirit, it gave them a sort of confidence to move out. Remember, after this sermon, they, they run away from the cross and they're locked up in an upper room somewhere. They are locked down, hiding. And then the spirit falls. Again, Acts chapter two, what's the imagery? The spirit of God hovering over the chaos of the upper room as the disciples are gathered together over the womb of the church, bringing life. And something shifts. And they move out and Paul says, Luke says that they turn the Roman Empire upside down over the next few centuries. What's the difference the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus' incarnation accomplished our redemption and our salvation, but we forget it's the Holy Spirit who applies that work to our lives. It's the Holy Spirit that removes the darkness inside of us. It's the Holy Spirit that wakes us up and opens up our eyes, our minds, our bodies As Mary was opened up to the transforming work of God, the Spirit of God comes into us and opens us up and internalizes the reality of God in our lives. By faith in Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, we participate in God's life. We participate in God's joy and his delight. That's the beauty of the Spirit's work, right? Everything that's true of Jesus now becomes true of us. We have access to the same Holy Spirit that Jesus knew and walked in. We have access to that intimacy. We have access to that strength the core of our being, right? I mean, this is the consistent witness of the Bible. Go to Romans 8. Read Romans 8. What was it that was helping Christians as they were being thrown to the lions in the midst of intense persecution and suffering? Paul writes to them and says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, who raised Jesus from the dead? God, the Father through the spirit raises Jesus from the dead. That same spirit lives in you, Paul says, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring more, your, your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the intimacy of the spirit. Ephesians chapter three, another place, Paul writes and he prays. What does he pray? What does he pray for the church? What is it they need more than anything else? Paul prays in Ephesians 3. I pray that he, the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Holy Spirit. What you need more than anything else, Paul says, is that fragile part of you, the core of your being that feels so desperately lonely and insecure apart from the power of God. That core needs to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith so that you being rooted and established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, the height and the depth of God's love, to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, do we need that? Man, do I need that? And the key to this, and I wanna wrap up, the key to this is just allowing ourselves, you notice the language, allowing ourselves, Paul says, to be led. All those who are led by the Spirit of God. Mary was one who allowed herself to be led. We talked about vulnerability a couple weeks ago with Mary. But that kind of vulnerability takes on a sort of unique flavor when we think about the Holy Spirit. It's it's a sort of radical openness to the reality of the Spirit in our lives to wake us up, to surprise us, to fill us, to empower us with the very life and love and joy. It's a sort of opening ourselves and letting go of control, letting go of expectation. One of the prayers I pray every single day with my children, if I'm with them and I'm praying with them in the morning, God, would you just fill us with your spirit? 
And God, would you just help us to let go of our agenda, let go of our expectations, let go of what we think should happen today, and would you lead us into what you want to happen to us and through us today? That's the kind of life that I want for myself, and I pray it because I often don't feel it. I feel control from the very moment I wake up rising up within me, and I want to seize control of my life. I want to dictate the outcomes of my life. And I sense this imitation the older I get from the Spirit to say, stop, open yourself, let me have control. And so that's what I want to invite us into. You can just go ahead and put your stuff away. I want to invite us into the space of opening ourselves like Mary. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it happen to me, God, as you plan, as you will, as you want. Would you, would you just allow your spirit to flow and, and to fill me and to empower me to, to take the things that belong to Jesus, all that I need today to, to be secure and to feel safe with God, to feel empowered by God's spirit, to have access to intimacy and strength in the Holy Spirit. And I just want to open myself to that reality, right? That's where joy and delight start. Those are the seeds. That is the soil of joy and delight is just simply opening ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, come and fill me, come and empower me, come and, come and equip me. Take all that belongs to Jesus and please give it to me and then allow me to live my life in that power and in that intimacy. And so I just wanna just invite you right where you're at to maybe open up your hands and just take a few quiet moments here Just take, again, a deep breath in, being reminded that the Spirit of God, if you are in Christ, if you are clinging to him as your hope and your joy and your salvation, that, as Augustine says, he, by the power of the Spirit, is in you, more intimate to you than you are to yourself. So it's just becoming awake to the reality of the Spirit of God alive in you, living in you, empowering you, filling you, overshadowing your story your life, your past, your present, your future. He is here with us right now. And so let's just take a moment to lift up our hands, to open up our hands, because the posture of our bodies often leads the posture of our souls. And I don't know what you're bringing into the room this morning. Maybe it's despair. Maybe it's cynicism. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's loneliness or sadness or anxiety or fear or bitterness. I don't know what you're carrying in here today. Maybe you're like Zechariah and you're suspicious and a little bit cynical about this stuff. And that's okay. Just be where you are. Maybe, maybe you're confused like Mary, but you're open Maybe you're like Anna, and you're in an intense season of of praying and longing and fasting and seeking God. But I just want to invite you to just open up your hands. Let go of your expectations, your agenda. Let go of a need to control what God's doing in your life. And I just want to invite you to say the words, come Holy Spirit. You can say them to yourself. You can say them out loud. Let's just repeat that together, let's make that a, an anthem for ourselves and our lives. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment to, to repeat those to the Lord. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal his life to you. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal his love, his joy, his delight, to strengthen you in your inner person, to help you to comprehend with all these saints here today what is the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love for you, to root you in that reality. And we so easily forfeit our inheritance. Jesus has promised us these things. Let's lay hold of it. Jesus says to, about John the Baptist, there's a sort of violence of taking hold of the kingdom of God. There's, a, there's an active pursuit as we open ourselves up. We lay a hold of that inheritance of the Spirit for us. So just, just speak to him. What's on your heart? What do you want? What are you longing for? What are you afraid of? What are you trying to control, manipulate? How are you trying to bend reality towards your purposes instead of being open to God's?
As you're praying and as you're noticing, observing what God might be stirring up in you right now, I want to read over us just a hymn. Um, For centuries, the church has been so dialed into the reality of the Holy Spirit, and one of the liturgies that has kind of guided the church in their awareness of and kind of immersion in the reality of the Holy Spirit and this invitation for the Spirit to come, kind of like the, the picture and the imagery that's been used is Ezekiel 37, just a valley of dry bones, a valley of hearts and souls and bodies that need to be brought alive again, need to be raised from the dead. There's this invitation in Ezekiel 37, come, Spirit of God, blow across these dry bones, and that's the kind of spirit with this, within which this prayer, it's really a prayer, was written. And I just want to read this over us. Every important meeting in the life of the church from about 900 or 1,000 AD involved this hymn. And so I want to read this over us as a sort of closing prayer and an articulation of our heart's desire to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll go to communion. So let's just join our minds and our hearts together. As you're praying, I want to pray this over us. And may this be the spirit and kind of the, the atmosphere that we kind of hold ourselves in by the power of God in this season. Hear these words. Come, creator spirit. Visit the minds of those who are yours. Fill with heavenly grace the hearts that you have made. You who are named the paraclete, gift of God most high, living fountain, fire, love, and anointing for the soul. You are sevenfold in your gifts. You are finger of God's right hand. You, the Father's solemn promise, putting words upon our lips. Kindle a light in our senses. Pour love into our hearts. Infirmities of this body of ours overcoming with strength, secure. The enemy drive from us away. Peace then give without delay. With you as God to lead the way, we avoid all cause of harm. Grant we may know the Father through you and come to know the Son as well. And may we always cling in faith to you, the spirit of them both. Amen.